Duggan, one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to bring God's Word to you this morning. Our sermon is from Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 9, continuing our sermon in Ephesians as we move into the beginning of the final chapter here. So let's give close attention to God's Word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us understand this word that you've given us today. And as it's one that's a little bit difficult, I suspect, for many of us, we pray that you would bring forth fruit, nevertheless, from our careful listening to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you have known me for a good while, but there's something you may not know about me, and that is that I am a father. That's right, for about eight or nine months now, Emily and I have parented two little rabbits named Cookie and Brownie. And you know, it's been, you know, parenthood can be kind of a challenge sometimes. Um, they, you know, they need a lot of care and nurturing. And one of the struggles we've had is that they don't always really obey the way that they should. Especially when it's time for them to get in their cage so that we can come to church. Sometimes it seems like more fun to hide under the couch and run around. Well, our passage today is about obedience and some of the problems we sometimes have with that. Uh, before we dive in, just a reminder of our broader context. Paul started this whole section with the exhortation, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, and at this point, he's moved into how that works its way out in our different relationships with people. How does this being filled with the Spirit look like in our lives? Ryan's walked us through Paul's words about husbands and wives, and today we move on to two other relationships. First, children and parents, and then slaves and masters. So I've got two main points. We're going to look at children and parents. We're going to talk about slaves and masters, and then we're going to conclude by looking to Jesus. So I'm starting with the children. Children, our Bible passage today says to obey your parents. It says you should obey your mom and your dad. 
let me ask you guys, do you always obey your parents? Sometimes it's a little hard to obey our parents, right? I mean, because we really don't want to do what they tell us to, or we really do want to do something, and they won't let us do it. So why do we still have to obey when it can be really, really hard sometimes? Well, our Bible passage says that we should obey our parents because it is right. Obeying your parents is the right thing to do. Now notice what our Bible passage doesn't say. It does not say that parents are always right. Are parents always right? Sometimes we might feel like our parents have gotten a decision wrong. Uh, maybe they've, that they're saying we're not allowed to do something, but we think we really should be allowed to do it. But what should we do when that happens? Is it still important to obey? Yes, it is. Your parents might not always be right, but they have lived longer than you, and, and they have more wisdom, and, and God's put them in charge of taking care of you. Let me, let me ask you about an idea. What if you, for the next week, had ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and got to spend all day playing video games or watching TV? Is that something that you would want to do? I see some yeses out there, and that's why you're not in charge. <laughs> Our Bible passage also says that you're to obey your parents in the Lord. Who is the Lord? Any guesses? I think it's Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus obeyed his heavenly Father always. Uh, Jesus never disobeyed. And you know what else? Though parents are sometimes wrong, Jesus was never wrong. Jesus is always right. And because of what Jesus did, when we believe in Jesus, God forgives us for the times that we disobey. It's like God gives us Jesus' rightness like a coat we can wear, so we're treated as if we had obeyed even though we didn't. And that means that even when we're having a hard time obeying our parents, we can pray and ask Jesus to help us. Children, you can say, God, please help me obey. I'm not always right. And my parents are not always right, but Jesus is always right, and he died to save us. Here's another thing this Bible passage says to you kids. Honor your father and your mother. In fact, I think it probably, that one probably applies to adults as well. Well, what does honor mean? It means you respect them. I mean, that means you speak to them in a respectful way. Uh, it means you're grateful for the good things they do to take care of you. And it's not about just doing what they tell you, but it also has to do with the attitude you have when you do it. This uh, commandment is actually from the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. And our Bible passage says that there's a promise attached to it. And the promise says that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. You see, in the Old Testament, God gave his people a special land to live in. That's not the same for us today, because now we're waiting for God to recreate the whole earth. But this promise still applies to us in some way. This Bible passage says that if you honor your parents, God will see that and God will reward you. 
that doesn't mean that you'll never have bad or difficult things in your life, but it does mean that God will bless you even despite that. Okay, so that's for the kids. Now, parents. Paul says, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Actually, he says that specifically to fathers, and I don't know if that's just because of the outsized power that fathers had in uh, the culture of his time, or, uh, or whether fathers are more likely on average to aggravate their children than mothers are. Um, I think Paul's he- words here really do apply to both. Paul says, do not provoke your children to anger. There's a lot of parenting advice Paul could have given. I wonder why he chose this one. I think maybe it's because it can be really hard for kids when so many things are out of their control and other people are making so many decisions for them. And any injustice in the house, real or perceived, can really frustrate you into becoming very angry. I know that because I was a very justice-oriented child growing up. So here's a question for parents to ask yourselves. How am I contributing to the anger level in the household? Am I doing things that unnecessarily provoke the kids? Maybe I myself am responding in angry ways that model anger for my children. And if your kids do get angry, pay attention. Children can be very emotional at times, it's true. And that might tempt us not to take their emotional reactions seriously, but good parents do. It's important to listen to what your kids have to say. And even if in the end you disagree, how you interact with your kids shapes a lot of their expectations about how authority is going to function as they head out into the world. Parents are also told to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um, I want us to notice one thing here, that this passage assumes that children in the church will normally be in relationship with God. You know, this is something that sometimes comes up in arguments I have with people about infant baptism. And I'm not going to try to settle that whole debate here. I know we probably have people on both sides in this congregation. We definitely have people on both sides in this congregation. But sometimes some of my theologian friends on the other side of this issue tell me, You know, we shouldn't baptize infants because of the difference between the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God worked through families. But in the New Testament, now God works in an individual way, a less corporate way. That's why Jesus said that his disciples were his mother and his brothers, rather than his biological mother and brothers in one passage. Kingdom membership is based on faith now, not physical descent, therefore we shouldn't baptize people until they make a public profession of faith. I want us to notice though that Paul has taken an Old Testament promise about children and parents and straightforwardly applied it to New Testament children in this passage. It's not the only time in the New Testament that happens. Peter in Acts 2.39 says that the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children and all those who are far off. Throughout the book of Acts, we hear about whole households being saved. Now, I'll admit, Acts never says for sure whether there are any children in those households or not, 
But why are households a relevant unit to mention in the first place? I'd argue that it's because God is not done working through families under the new covenant. Okay, I don't think just that part of the argument settles the infant baptism debate, and I may not have convinced you, but I do think it's important for how we think about our children. Do we just assume that they are default pagans who happen to live under our roof? Or are they part of God's church, members of his covenant community who have covenant privileges and responsibilities, who, yes, we expect to have faith and show faith as they grow older? I think that's how children are usually described in the New Testament. So what that means is that parents have a discipleship relationship with their kids. Parents, it's your job to bring them up. Uh, Or we could translate that word to nurture them. Care and tend to their growth. You're supposed to nurture them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. These are words that are taken especially from the book of Proverbs, by the way, and that's a great book to think about as a parent. And they don't mean just teach your kids theology. I don't mean to deny the importance of teaching our kids about Jesus and who God is, but what these really mean is not teach your kids head knowledge, but teach them how to live in a good and biblical way. Uh, It's not just to get them to recite catechism questions. Rather, it's to get them to understand who Jesus is and what his forgiveness means when they're having a problem with their little brother or when things are difficult at school. There's a negative side to discipline and instruction here. Maybe that's what you think of first when you hear the word discipline. Maybe you think about punishment and consequences. And that's true. You need to set boundaries for your kids. There need to be consequences for disobedience. Don't punish them in a severe or abusive way, but also don't let them get away with murder. I think we focus a lot in our current moment on how violent abuse hurts children, and that's very important and something we need to think about a lot. But lack of discipline hurts children too. In fact, it's a form of neglect. Proverbs puts this even stronger than I would feel comfortable doing on my own. If we don't discipline our children, we hate them. That's what Proverbs says. It doesn't feel like that always. It might feel like disciplining your children interrupts your feeling of emotional closeness with them, and that can make it difficult. But real love is based on what's actually good for somebody, not just what feels good. So if we put the feeling of harmony with our children ahead of what's actually good for them, we're not loving them. That's the negative side. But there's a positive side as well. Discipline isn't just punishment. It's training on how to be a disciplined person. This kind of positive discipline and instruction is really important. Uh, It's not going to be good for your relationship with your children if the only time you interact with them is negatively to correct them. That's not a way to build a discipleship relationship. Rather, you are to positively nurture them. And to do that, you're going to need to know them. You're going to need to listen to the things they have to say. Try to understand the problems that they're having on their level in their life. And you need to model Christian behavior for them. Model who Jesus is. 
Your kids may learn more from that than from what you even do, or more from what you do than from what you say. I think a, and I think a big part of applying the discipline and instruction of the Lord means that in the way you parent, you recognize the fact that you are under Jesus' authority. Your power is not absolute. You know, people began to remark, with me, remark to me occasionally when I was a teenager at some point, and as I grew older, that I seemed to have a closer relationship to my parents than many of the other teenagers that they knew. And a lot of them wondered why. And I don't know if I know exactly why, but the thought that always came back to me was, I can remember instances where my parents came to me and admitted that they were wrong and asked for my forgiveness. You know, the funny thing, I don't really remember what the thing they initially did that was wrong. I do remember the fact that when they realized they were wrong, they came and asked for my forgiveness. Because what that said to me was, there's an authority that's above them. We confess when we're wrong, and we receive forgiveness, and give forgiveness as Christ has forgiven us. It really sticks with me as the most powerful testimony to Christ that I received practically from my parents. So that's something I commend to you as parents as well. Okay, that's my first point. Parents and children. Now we turn to the second point. The relationship between slaves and masters. Paul tells slaves to obey their masters, and that makes this a difficult passage for us living today, doesn't it? Uh, I want to start by introducing some context here. First, slavery in the Roman Empire was different from the slavery of Africans by Europeans from the 17th century onward. I think we need to address that. What was particularly heinous about 17th century slavery was that it went hand in hand with racism and prejudice based on the color of your skin. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world wasn't based on race. Also, there were lots of different kinds of slavery. Sometimes people were enslaved as prisoners of war, or because they could not pay their debts, they sold themselves or their children into slavery. Sometimes people were enslaved just because they were the child of a slave. Some slaves were contracted to serve for only a limited time, and it was much more like indentured servitude, whereas others were slaves for life. Some slaves served elite functions in the homes of powerful individuals or even worked for the state. Some of them were able to earn money and actually buy their freedom. Most slaves weren't that lucky. Many would have been farmers, and the least fortunate would have been involved in particularly brutal forms of slavery in the mines. I, while I want to distinguish ancient slavery from 17th century slavery, I don't want to sugarcoat what it was like to be a slave. You were still de deprived of freedom, abuse was rife, and you had few legal protections from abuse. Ephesus, where Paul seems to be writing this letter, it would itself have been perhaps the most active center of sla the slave trade outside of Rome itself at the time, at least according to one historian. Historians estimate the population of the surrounding provinces about 27% slaves, about 3% Roman citizens, and 70% everybody else. So we could imagine about a third of the people in the service in the church may have been slaves, or perhaps even more, given the fact that Jesus' message often attracted the poor parts of society. Slavery was integral to Roman society. In fact, in many cases, it was actually enforced by the state. 
That Caesar Augustus that we hear about in the Christmas story every year, ever a fan of keeping people in their place in the social hierarchy, he passed a law that made it illegal to free more than a certain proportion of your slaves, and illegal to free any slave under the age of 30. Turning to Judaism, the other part of this context, on the other hand, the Old Testament sought to limit slavery. Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15 say that you have to release your Hebrew slaves in the seventh year, only temporary slavery allowed. There were further controls to prevent abusive behavior. If you kill a slave, it's still murder. If you seriously injure a slave, they go free. If a slave runs away, Deuteronomy 23.15 forbids you from returning them to their owner. Leviticus 25 is even stricter. It actually forbids the enslavement of fellow Israelites entirely, although it permits enslavement of foreigners. By Paul's time, it was likely that many Jews had already settled on the position we find in the Talmud, that Jews should never enslave a fellow Jew, but that Gentiles were fair game. Still, there were some Jews, like the group named the Essenes, who seemed to have refused to have slaves of any kind, and many admired them for it. So if we're going to understand Paul, I think we need to understand a little bit of that context. Uh, if he was educated into the belief that it was wrong for Jews to enslave other Jews, I wonder how he reckoned with that when he came to accept the inclusion of Gentiles in the church. Paul tells those Gentiles in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, we might immediately say, well, Paul's talking about spiritual slavery there, right? And that's true. But that doesn't mean there aren't political implications here. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is telling the Corinthians to be content in their station in life. He says, if you're married or unmarried, if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, Jew or Gentile, be content. Don't seek to change it. And he also tells slaves to be content or free to people to be content, but he makes a qualification there. It's different. He says, the slave should become free if they're able to do so. And that's because there's something inappropriate about being free in Jesus and being a slave to a human being. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. And this suggests that there's something different about slavery for Paul, that unlike Jew or Gentile or married or single, the institution of slavery isn't just sort of a legitimate part of the diversity of culture um, that fits with Christianity. Of course, we want Paul to outright call for the legal abolition of slavery, probably, or at least command all members of the church to emancipate their slaves. But it's worthwhile to remember that Christians in this period did not wield much political power. They didn't have freedom of speech, and they couldn't vote for the emperor. The teaching of the apostles about relating to the government mostly assumes that the government is not able to be changed by the people they're addressing. They're mostly about how to cope with it. As for commanding individual Christians to release slaves, as I mentioned before, this may actually have been illegal in many cases. Individuals were not necessarily free to manumit their slaves whenever they wanted. I think we see Paul walking a careful, politically savvy line on this issue. As I read the book of Philemon, Paul commands the Colossian Christian Philemon to receive his slave Onesimus as a brother and treat him like a brother. Paul doesn't command him to free him. 
but he strongly hints that it would be a good thing for him to do. I think Paul is trying to take a realistic political stance against the oppression of slavery without trying to overthrow the whole civil order. Maybe we would prefer if he started a slave revolt, but if you know the history of slave revolts in the Roman world, I'm not sure it would have been a more ethically responsible thing to do. With all that in mind, I think there are a few remarkable things about Paul's teaching here that I don't want us to miss. One is the contrast between earthly masters. Paul literally calls them lords according to the flesh and Jesus, the Lord in heaven. So these lords are only lords according to the flesh. I don't know if you're familiar with Paul's use of the term flesh elsewhere in the New Testament. But he talks about things like circumcision as only a sign in the flesh that no longer has any meaning. There is no deeper spiritual meaning, no sense in which the lords are lords because of some deep order of things. And really, the slaves are slaves of Christ. They should obey their masters, but they should do their work so as to serve Jesus and not humans. They shouldn't work to satisfy other human beings. Paul says, not for eye service, not just working for the way people are seeing you work, and not as people pleasers. They're not supposed to work in those ways. Rather, they should focus on goodwill towards others and God's lordship. Also, Paul notes that God will reward them for the good they do. And their free masters are under the same Lord, who will also reward them for the good or the bad that they do. And now comes the really strange part. I wonder if you noticed it when I was reading the passage. What does Paul say when he turns to the masters? He says, do the same things to them. This has confused some biblical scholars. I mean, taken literally, wouldn't Paul be saying that masters should obey and serve their slaves? Paul can't really be saying that, can he? And and yet it seems to be what he says. Having started this passage, if you remember, with this global call for everyone to submit to one another. Remember, submit to one another out of the fear of Christ is how we start this whole passage in the context of mutual submission. Paul seems to come back to it at the end with this paradoxical charge that slaves and masters should both serve each other. And if you've read things Paul says elsewhere, it's maybe not so crazy. Going back to Galatians 5 again, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. I think sometimes serve and servant make these texts sound a little more palatable to us than they are. This is the word for to be a slave. Paul is saying you are free, so be a slave to one another. So this paradox, this is not the only time we find it in Paul. He also adds here, stop your threatening. And that word for threatening is something we find in the context of slavery, often meaning the threat for violence. So Paul says that masters aren't allowed to get slaves to comply with their orders by threatening violence. This is a pretty radical thing to say in his context. He reminds them that both they and their slaves have a master in heaven, and he has no partiality implied. If you mistreat your slaves, God will judge. 
So Paul, speaking into this very hierarchical society, he says to those on the bottom rungs, don't rebel against the hierarchy, but don't live for the hierarchy either. Don't see yourself through the eyes of powerful humans and don't ultimately care about pleasing them. Seek to work for God in whatever station you're in. It's just a human, fleshly system. It's not how it's going to be before God's judgment throne on the last day. When we stand before him, none of this stuff is going to matter. And to those higher up, he says, don't use violence or the threat of violence to enforce the hierarchy. And in fact, see yourself as the slave of those who are below you. Perhaps most challenging for us in our politically activist culture, the change Paul is calling for doesn't immediately target external political, social, economic relations. So how do we apply this to ourselves today? Well, I think we want to immediately talk about changing the system and making it better. Maybe we want Paul to talk more about that, give us you know, a program for transforming Roman law. And listen, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. I think Paul would want us to work for justice with the power we have. And in a system where we have freedom of speech and can vote, we have a lot more power than his original hearers. If we turn to scripture passages, say, from the prophets that are addressing people who are movers and shakers in their society, we hear a lot of calls for justice. So I'm not saying that it's wrong to think about those kinds of things or work or strive for justice with the power that we have. Um, Back then, we, they had a lot less power. Even the, if you think about this, even the higher status in, people's, uh, in, in Paul's congregation probably had less power to actually change the system they were living in than we do today. You know, thus Augustus making laws saying you can't free all your slaves. But listen, we may live in a democratic republic where the free market picks winners and losers, and there's a lot of social mobility. And I prefer that. I'd rather live now than in uh, first century Rome. But there's still a hierarchy there of financial and social success. I think we still need to hear this too. It's just a human and fleshly system. Don't get caught up in it. It's not the most important focus. Are you lowered down in that system? and people look down on you, don't take it too seriously. Seek to serve God where you're at. Are you high up in that system? Are you pretty successful by some metric that our culture values? Big deal. It doesn't mean much. Work to serve God where you are at. Here's my application question for us. And it goes back to this eye service and people pleaser words that Paul uses. Which eyes do you most care when they see you? Good or bad? It's a question you can ask yourself. Which people do you want to be pleased? What are the things about you that you want them to see and be pleased about? When we ask these questions, we can expose ways in which we've bought into this human system in our hearts and are allowing it to control 
our understanding of our own value rather than how God sees things and will see things on the day of the final judgment. So this brings me around to my conclusion. I want to notice that through this whole section, right with the submitting to one another at the beginning, Paul has been emphasizing one thing over and over again, and that is the lordship of Christ. He's brought it up for all these categories of social order, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. And in all of these cases, Jesus' lordship relativizes these earthly human orders. Yes, because of Jesus' lordship, Paul says, we shouldn't be seeking to violently rebel and overthrow the system. But at the same time, Jesus' lordship doesn't justify the system or say it's perfectly fine. Instead, it relativizes it and says that it has only human value. At the same time, it transforms the way that we understand this whole culture and especially the way that we should deal with the power that we have inside of it. Whether we are powerful, more powerful or less powerful, each of us should find our ultimate purpose in life through serving Jesus. As Martin Luther once said, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. I'll be the first to admit that this submission with mutual submission thing is pretty paradoxical, and honestly, I'm not sure I've totally figured it out. I usually assume when Scripture describes something in a paradoxical way, that's because it's actually very difficult in reality. But I will say this. I think this calling has something to do with the kind of Savior that we have, the kind of lordship we're called to submit to. Because Jesus is a king who lived in poverty, a leader who washed his subjects' feet, a lord who served his people, and a victor who triumphed by dying. So following him is always going to be a little topsy-turvy. But our hope for figuring it out in the Christian life doesn't come from how wise we are. It comes from his wisdom. It comes from seeking to gaze upon who Christ is, the way that he's given himself and laid himself down for us, seeking to let his spirit guide us to know how we should serve him wherever we are in life. He died to save us and rose that we might have new life. And he's at his Father's right hand with all authority and power and might, yet still serving us by interceding. Jesus is right, even when we are not. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us how we are to live out these scriptural words in all the various places that we're in. We pray that we would care about injustice and use our power to address it. But we also pray that we would not cling to asserting our own rights over serving other people. We pray that you would help us to know how to do that, that you would make us more Christ-like and more filled by your Spirit in the various places in our lives where we struggle with this. In Jesus' name, amen.